you don't mind, I'm gonna, just going to pull up a table and a chair and sit down and talk with you for a little bit. Uh, Friday night, I had, uh, uh, I guess, a 24-hour virus that hit me pretty hard and uh, wiped me out yesterday. I was a lump on the couch, gave me a reason to be a lump on the couch yesterday, and so struggling still a little bit with energy. And so anyway, we'll give it a good college try today, if you'll be patient with me and as we look at, uh, look at this uh, final message in our Quest series. Um, you know, I think we've all heard now, I don't think anything I had was deadly or, or anything like that. It was just a quick virus that uh, has come and gone. I only get sick about once every three or four years, and so if I can get sick in a 24-hour period and, and then I'm done for the next three or four years, then I'm okay with that. Uh, that that'll be just fine. I won't, I, I'm, due, I, I'm not due for another four years. Uh, but, you know, you hear of, you hear of the sicknesses like uh, Ebola. You hear of salmonella. You hear of pandemics like AIDS and and malaria, and, and we know of sicknesses like that, and we know of influenza, but have you ever heard of affluenza? Uh, there was actually a book written about affluenza, and it's actually, uh, I think, a, a, a disease that's out there, a sickness that's out there that we need to be aware of. It's not something you're going to catch from somebody, however you will get it in this world, and especially living here in America. Uh, the subtitle is an all-consuming ep- epi- epidemic that we have going on in our own age. Affluenza, it was, a, it was actually, it was a book made into a movie in 2000, uh, made into a film in 2005, and it really speaks to a problem that we have across our, our culture that because we're in the culture, because we're in the virus, because we're living with this, sometimes you don't see it. Until you come, sometimes separate yourself from it. Until you can somehow, in some way, get an objective view upon really what's going on in your own heart, in our own society, and we have to be aware of it. If affluenza was a noun, it would say something like this, according to the authors. It's a painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste, resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. The dogged pursuit of more, never quite having enough, never being having the fast enough thing or the new enough thing or the shiny enough thing or whatever it is or a big enough salary. And so we struggle with this affluenza. And again, we don't even realize it. We almost grow up and raise our kids, our children to have affluenza where we train them that, hey, it's always bigger, better to the right that you need to be moving. It's always keeping up with the Joneses. It's all these different temptations that are out there that draw us in that we must be very careful of because we will have it. And it's a sure, sure sign that you have it in our culture when we buy things we don't want with money we don't have to oppress people we don't like. Think about that one. That's what we do in our culture. People we don't even know, we, we buy things to impress them. It makes us insane irre- and irresponsible and irritable and, and even at times even immoral if we're not careful about the way that we will live our life when affluenza comes on. It creates many headaches, heartaches, and hard times for families and individuals and it, it, it sometimes can compromise our character. It was interesting in, in Men's Health Magazine a few years ago, I read this uh, uh, study that was done by TD Ameritrade that found that that couples on an average five fights a year regarding money uh, and the spence of money. I, I think probably that's an understatement. 
whenever you look at other studies that have said that 80% of the couples who end up in divorce said that money was a contributing factor in that divorce. Either, again, misuse of money, not having enough money, the, the security of money. It begins to shape our morals and values. Another study that was done, organizational behavior and human decision processes, found that those who uh, had more money on the table they were more apt to cook the books. Uh, basically, a bigger business, a bigger opportunity, this money won't be missed, I can cook the books a little bit, and it will benefit me, and I will be okay, and after all, it's all justified. Now, you would think that this might be true of a culture that's third world, that's there's poverty, that's rampant, that people are living on the streets, that that's where immorality comes in, that's where unethical behavior comes in. You would think that not in America... America is ranked 13th among 182 nations in its HDI ranking among the UN, which just is to say human development uh, index, that basically we are a very developed and wealthy nation and established, but yet this is the thing about affluenza, is there's never enough. There's just never enough. It's one more raise, and it's one more promotion, and it's one more something, and it's a bit more square footage, and it's a, a little newer car, and it's, it's just never enough, and the society that we live in drives us at this. So again, if you can be the most developed, one of the most developed countries, one of the most affluent countries, and yet you're still struggling with the fact that we want more and more and more, there's a problem with that. There's a problem with that. And again, when we're living in it, when the world is saying that's okay, when movies are feeding it and advertising it is enticing us, it's really easy to say, hey, this is just life, Mike. This is just the way it is. And let's just accept it. I read a very disturbing study in USA Today this past summer, in fact, just a couple of months ago, that more than one-third of Americans, U.S. citizens, 35% of Americans have debt in collection. Now, I had to read on to find out what that, exactly that meant. That's not just having debt. America has debt, okay? We have debt. We, make, we spend more than actually we make in a year, if you don't realize that. But debt in collection means that this debt has been on the books for longer than 180 days and that it is in the process of collection. And here we are, one of the most affluent and developed countries, but yet one-third of our citizens are struggling just to pay for that new, nicer, bigger, fancier, brighter, whatever it is that is out there. This is a problem that we have, affluenza. Never enough. We come to the pro to, back to the series of messages on quest. What is it again? It is the pursuit and the practice of a life well-lived. And there's no way that we can come and talk about this topic and talk about a good life, a life well lived, and not come to this topic of managing our money, or what I'm going to call wealth management, or what some people would call stewardship in the, in the old Sunday school circles. Okay, it's called Christian stewardship. I like wealth management. It sounds a lot sexier, right? And so you got wealth management is what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with the fact that we are all blessed and we have all been given so much and, and that we need to realize that as we talk about this, this is our seventh practice that we're going to talk about, that as we kind of land this series today, that we're landing it on a very touchy topic. 
that may actually influence some of the decisions in your home right now. It may even conjure up, listen to this, I'm not trying to do this, may even conjure up some shame and guilt, some regret and remorse. But let's just settle in for a moment and let's not go there yet. Let's let the Spirit of God speak and figure out some answers to this. Because I think if we can start shaping or allowing God to shape us in this area where he wants to shape us in this area, then we will be healthier, our families will be happier, and at the end of our life, it will be a life well lived. You think, Mike, you're talking about something that really you have no business talking about. It's not really something that pertains to you. And I certainly don't see it as something that, that pertains to, to God in the Bible. But yet you realize that Jesus himself spoke more about money than he did about heaven or hell. He gave more instructions on how to handle your money than he did on how to pray. You can't get away from the fact that Jesus himself brings it constantly in to the conversation that 15% of every word that is recorded that came out of the mouth of Christ pertains to wealth and money. So we cannot talk about it as a, faith, as a faith follower and ignore the fact that how we handle, how we pursue, what we think about, how we dwell on it, how it consumes our life is an absolute part of the Christian faith. Matthew chapter 6, if you'll find that, the only full recorded message of Christ in the Gospels, and yet in the very heart of it, he takes an entire chapter and devotes out of three chapters, and this just shows you the priority of it, of the entire message, Sermon on the Mount, as they call it, from chapter 5 to chapter 7, the entire chapter of chapter 7 deals with how we manage wealth, how it manages us. So the title of the message is this, may I speak to the manager, please? Because what we need to really try to uh, assess today is who is the manager? The wealth, the manage, is, is, is my wealth managing me or am I managing my wealth? Am, am I in control of this moving snowball or is it absolutely crumbling around me? So you come to chapter 6 and you come to verse uh, 21 right in the slap dab in the middle of the chapter and you come and, and you ver come to verse 21 and it says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So he really takes it straight to the heart and he says, listen, listen, you really want to get this down? You really want to know what the crust of the issue is? Is where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. And this is one of the verses in the Scripture, you can't always do this, but you can literally reverse it and it makes it even clearer. That where your heart is, your treasure will be. You can look at your bank statements, you can look at your credit card statements, you can look at your spreadsheets, you can look at your, uh, your, your money management systems, you can look at your, your cash flow in your home, and you can tell more about your heart than anything else. Where it belongs, where it is, where your treasure is, your heart will be, and where your heart will be, your treasure will be. I believe in the Christian life more than you telling me you've read your Bible every day of the week, more than you giving me your prayer list, I believe one of the greatest tools of you and I assessing our spiritual heart and condition is not what the church thinks about you or somebody at the church thinks about you. It's what your bank statement says about you. 
That says more about your heart and where your treasure is and where your love is and where your devotion is. And so let's think about this today. Who is the manager in your life? And I think when you talk about managers, you must really understand that. Because how you handle your money and stuff says more about your spiritual condition than your social position. Sure, we think about our social position based on our socioeconomic status, based on our income, based on a whole lot of things. But really, when you want to get down to it, it says about more about your spiritual condition. So who's in control? Who's the manager? Who's the boss? Who's, who's got control of those finances in the home? I know sometimes it's the woman, sometimes it's the man, sometimes it's the kids. It's who's spending the most and who's saving. Not that. Overall, in your heart and your life, who's in control? And I think if we're going to maintain control of a very sensitive area, of a very delicate area, we need to step forward and control three main areas. These three main areas are what we find in the Sermon on the Mount. He points us to, to say, hey, get a grip on this. The first one is we have to learn to control our wants. All right? We all want, I want, I'll tell you right now, confess it here on the stage in front of God and everyone, that I am the impulsive buyer in our home. I need to start a group for Impulsive Buyers Anonymous, all right, in, in, a, home, in a home, because that's me. All right, Lori is the calculated, the think about it, the, the get it all thought through kind of person. I'm the one who says, hey, let's make a plan and make it work. Let's just go do it. And so I'm the dangerous one. And so here is, this comes to me before it comes to anyone else. But I want us to do something today, and I want us to just realize. So let's just, again, build from the ground up. Everyone in this room is rich, all right? Now, I, I, know, I know the temptation is, is that you don't think you're rich. In fact, if somebody said, are you rich? You said, no, I'm middle class. Or if you're rich, you wouldn't say, you know, I'm, I'm just blessed. That's the Christian way to say it, all right? I'm just blessed. Uh, and so you're blessed, or you're, you, but you're rich. And I, and I make no bones about that. I'm not a prophet, the son of a prophet, nor do I believe in word of faith. So I just want to say today that everyone in this room is rich, and we just need to embrace our wealth and understand that. Gallup did a study with Money Magazine and, uh, and asked the question of, of its subscribers, what was rich? What did rich look like? And it was interesting, Gallup, as they did this study, what it came back is, Basically, the short end of it is that if a person made twice as much as they were making, they would be considered rich. And so how, how that would flesh out is if you're making $30,000 today and you thought what rich might look like, feel like, is that you would put yourself as a $60,000 mark. Or if you were at 60000 if you could make one hundred and twenty, then you would be rich and that you could make changes to your life and to the way you live your life and and it went on to say that if you doubled your salary, even people in Money Magazine subscribers, which they, they estimate make in the millions of dollars, that even people that were making, uh, uh, that making $2.5 million thought, if I could just make $5 million, then I would be rich. See, the, the, the real issue is, is, is that we just need more to be rich. We're never quite there. So let me come back to the, to the fact that everyone in this room is rich. And now let's just not look at it from, okay, but Mike, you're richer than I am and, and he's richer than she is and we can get all that kind of stuff going. Let's just look at it from a 
from a global perspective, all right? Let's put some global eyes on this because our God's a global God. And so I want you to jot down this web address, and I'm, we're going to do a kind of a practice gig on this. It's global, globalrichlist.com, all right? So let me tell you a story, and we're gonna, then we're going to practice on this using this website here. So I'm going to take myself, when I came out of college and I got my first job, all right? Now, my first real job out of college, and I was a college recruiter for the university that I attended, and, and we were making, I could not believe how much that we were making. We were making $15,000 a year. I mean, I, we thought at $15,000 a year, we're now going to go shop for a home, we're going to buy new cars, we're going to do all this kind of stuff. We had all these big plans, what were we going to do with this $15,000? And so we were really going to make it. Now, you look up today what what is the poverty level of two Americans living in America today? And you're going to find it's fifteen thousand dollars. Fifteen thousand, I think, uh, seven hundred and thirty dollars to be exact. So we were just, according again, that was a few years ago. Uh, so back then we were above poverty level, I'm sure, but we were not much above poverty level. But we felt rich for a few moments until we went out and bought that new car, until we started doing those new things, and then all of a sudden you feel poor again, and you need to feel rich again. Well, so let's just get us all on the same page. We're all rich in this room today. So let's just plug in $15,000 as if you were making $15,000 today, which would be poverty level in America. And let's see what happens whenever it populates out here. So I would be at $15,000 a day. I would be in the top 8% of the world's wealthiest people. So you can take that salary that you make that's not quite enough and you just plug it in yourself and see where you rank among the world. And so if you've ever wanted to be rich, guess what? You're officially rich today. All right? You may not make $15,000. You may be a college student. You may be a, a, a student making minimum wage somewhere. Plug it in. See where you rank in the world. In reality, and I'm going to be in a place this next week. There's going to be people that I'm going to see on a regular basis that live on less than a dollar a day. Live on less than a dollar a day. The reality is that we're all rich. And what we need to do is we need to start seeing our, our wealth through God's perspective. We need to develop a new control over our wants. Look at verse 19 and verse 21. Through verse 21 with me. Jesus puts on his financial planner hat. He literally, you, you mark him down. The words that he uses to point out financial planning, all right? So look, look at me at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth and rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. So if you look at that passage of Scripture, just a few verses there, you find where he points out, he uses actually some banker terms there. Go ahead and throw that up there, uh, the, next, the next slide up, guys. Uh, he says, so lay up, basically, what's your investment planning? Treasures, where you're, what's the value on what you're investing? Moth and rust destroy. What's the security and loss? What's your risk ratio here in, in, in your investments? Heaven, where, where should you think about putting your investments? Think about a sound investment. Think about an institution out there that's going to last, that's going to go the distance. What about heaven? An institution holding v value in things that will never, ever go away. We ask this question in the business world. What's the ROI? What does ROI stand for? 
Come on. Return on your investment. But have we ever asked, what's the eternal return on my investment? What is the high and lasting and honorable return on my investment? The high and lasting and honorable. I want you to think about doing an exercise as a couple this, this afternoon and this week. I want to prefer you to do it this afternoon. Because you're home this afternoon, it's a good thing to do. But I want you to think about taking an ABC budget that, that I worked on, and actually Lori and I worked on, and then actually had somebody put it into a spreadsheet. We have it online. You can download it for free. You can plug in your numbers. I want you to think about working on a budget this afternoon and really working on, as a couple, what does our investment look like? What, do, what God has blessed us with, where are we laying up? Where are we investing? What kind of treasures do we have? What kind of risk are we, are we assuming with our investments? Where moth and rust can corrupt, corrupt, where things can be taken and stolen, where things can devalue? Are we putting enough into the eternal things out there? Thomas Carl, Carlisle, a Scottish essayist, put it like this. He said, adversity is hard on a man. But for everyone who can stand prosperity, there's a hundred who can stand adversity. We need to understand today we're rich. With that wealth, it is going to be hard to manage. And the first thing we've got to manage is where we're putting it. And where we're going to put it is we're going to put it on our wants. And if we don't control our wants then we're going to be putting it in ways that can be stolen, can be corrupted, can be devalued, can be depreciated. We need to really assess where we're investing what God has entrusted to us. Number two, if we're going to control the money and the wealth that God allows us to have, we need to control the worry. One of the most anxious parts of our life is, are we going to have enough? Will we have enough? Do I have enough today? Will there, be enough, uh, will there be enough paycheck at the end of the month? You know, we sometimes lose that. 85% of our time, one person said a long time ago, we spend thinking about money, either making money for the business, making money for ourselves, or spending money, or, or, or dreaming about money, or thinking about how we can make more money. We're thawing constantly. It's a constantly on our mind. Therefore, I understand why God talks about, Jesus talks about money so much. It's because it's constantly on our minds. And sometimes it's not very easy to increase your wealth, so therefore, when our wants continue to increase then our desire for more continues to increase, then our anxiety continues to increase, and it just snowballs. Verse 25, look with, it, look with me here. I'm going to read several verses here, and I want you to circle the words every time the word anxious comes up. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life for what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body for what you will put on is not life more, underscore that phrase, food, body, more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap to gather in the barns, and, they are, and, and, and yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you is being anxious, there it is again, can add a single hour to his span of his life? 
In fact, it takes life from you whenever you're anxious and worrying. And why are you anxious? There it is again about clothing. Consider all the lilies of the field and how they grow and neither toil or spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all of his glory was arrayed like one of these. Was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field in which which today is alive and tomorrow is, is, thrown over, uh, is, is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious. Anxiety, worry, fretting. I want you to go back to that phrase in verse 25. Is not life more? And then I just want you to fill in the blank. What, what's consuming you right now? What, what, what about money is consuming you? Is it, is it, I want this new thing, or I wish I could do that, or if I had more, I got passed over for a promotion, my resume doesn't look as good, so therefore I can't. Well, what is it about you that right now is causing anxiety and angst and worry and fear about life? Fill in the blank. Is not life more than that? Is not life more in the clothes I wear, the car I drive, the house I live, the title I carry, the resume I share, the salary I make, the status I claim, is not life more. There are two traps out there that get us in life. First of all, it's the Jones syndrome. The Jones syndrome is that the fact that the Joneses got it and I didn't get it. Advertising does this to us, and I know you in the marketing world know all about this. In the advertising world, you know all about this. You, you, you live in this world. You know, we, we've gone from caveman to crave man. We've kind of evolved into that, if you will. Our neighbors get a new car. We like their new car. We want a new car like that new car. Our colleague gets a new computer, gets a new something. We want that, the same thing. There's just something that's in, inside of us. Again, it creates an anxiety, a worry, a longing. We wouldn't call it that, but that's what happens inside of us. It begins to take over us. We get passed over for the promotion. Somebody else got the promotion. Sometimes it's just that envy that's deep inside of us. It begins to well up. There's the enough factor. When is enough enough? Boy, is this not ever true? How much is enough? In space, in time, in, in money, a could doesn't always equal a should. Winston Churchill was the firstborn son to R Lord Randolph Churchill, I should say, and uh, an, ar an aristocratic family, very wealthy. Lord Randolph did not have a whole lot of time for Winston, sent him to a boarding school. Winston grows up missing his father, not being a part of his father, but hey, his father was making money for the family. So what he did to try to make up for not being able to spend time with his son is he did everything he could to make sure everything his son needed, wanted, he had. Winston Churchill, who grew up in that, said of this, said of that childhood, we are stripped bare by the curse of plenty. Stripped bare by the curse of plenty. The message puts the verses that we just read, verse 27 to verse 29, like this. See if this brings it a little closer to home. All this time and money wasted on fashion. Do you think it makes that much of a difference? Instead of looking at the fashions, walk into the fields. Look at the wildflowers. They never primp. 
or shop. But have you ever seen color and design quite like it? The 10 best dressed men and women in the country look shabby alongside them. Is not life more? Fill in the blank. What is it for you? I, I know we all have the wants. It's all we all have dreams. But if we don't control the wants, it will lead to uncontrolled worries and anxieties and longings and keeps us up at night and therefore we'll go out and spend and buy and things and, and we'll get ourselves into a crunch and, and it creates anxiety in, on top of our desire for more and we feed that monster that never gets enough. And yet all along, Philippians 4, 6 is there, don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So here's what happens now. You have Jesus over here saying, don't be anxious. You, ha you have Paul over here saying, hey, listen, when you find yourself getting anxious about this financial decision or whatever it is in life, why don't you take it to God first? Bring God into the equation. Bring God in and say, God, is this a part of you? Is this, is this what you want from me? And I am willing to wait and wait and wait and hear your voice and allow you to change my wants. But you know what that's going to presuppose? That you're going to want to listen to his answer. If you don't want to hear the no when you want to hear a yes, it won't work. If you don't want to hear the wait, when you're ready to make the move, it won't work. Because really, each one of these builds, each one of these controls builds on the other. And really, you start at the bottom and work your way up. First control is we got to control our wants. Second control, we got to control our worries. But if we get number three right, it can come together. We got to control what we worship. If we're not careful, the very thing that we're striving, if we're spending 85% of our time going after, longing for, can't get enough of, if we're spending 85% of our time thinking about it, making it, and spending it, investing it, there's, there's no end to that. It can easily become a God to us and us not even know it. Now, in the next two weeks, uh, while I'm in South Asia with a team, Lori's going to actually be sharing with you for the next two Sundays and She's going to kind of bring this, this message series to a close and then actually lead well into the next series of messages. The next series of messages I'm, going to, I'm calling Desire. And it'll start mid-October. And actually, what I would call this series of messages, if, if any of y'all were with us in the, in the new year when we, I did a stuck series of messages, this is more of a prequel. It's kind of like Star Wars on sermons, okay? I'm doing a prequel. Uh, to, to the sermon series. Didn't realize I was going to do this, but in the process of after doing stuck, I realized that, you know, there's a whole, we can avoid getting stuck if we can start at our desires. And so we're going to go back and we're going to talk about desire, just, just starting with what we want and how we can gain victory. Because what happens, if we don't realize it, we will have little idols that will begin to mushroom in our life. Worship is not what is happening in this room. Worship is what's happening in your heart. Let me say that to you again. Worship is not what's happening in this room. We may call this the worship center. 
We may call this a worship service. We may call this the worship band. But all of that is really a misnomer. What real worship is, is happening right now in your heart. What is it that you're longing, lusting, desiring, craving, can't keep your mind off of, can't keep your hands off of, can't, can't keep pursuing, can't keep away from? Be very, very careful because you cannot have two gods. Jesus makes this plain in verse 24. And money and stuff and things can easily step in and become one of those gods. Verse 24, Jesus said this, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So it's Jesus who draws a line in the sand. He says, listen, who are you going to worship? Your wants? Your worries? Are you going to worship me? Who's going to be first in, in, your, in, your, in your walk and in your life? Listen, I can't be married to Lori and sleeping with somebody else. That's called adultery. I can't be a U.S. citizen and serve ISIS. That's called treason. I can't work for Walmart and be serving P&G's bottom line. That's called unemployed. All right? Verse 33, Jesus puts a wrap on this. Seek first the kingdom of God. After you go through all this money talk, if you go through all this anxiety over stuff and things that we want and things that we long for in life, if you go through all this, Jesus just kind of brings it all to an end. And he says, listen, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. All these things you're worried about, all these things you're concerned about, all this stuff, the clothing, the fashion, the, 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 the fame, the, the, what you're needing. Listen, I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his children begging for bread, Psalm says. You're going to be okay. God's going to take care of you. But the problem is, is that we have little idols in our life that are sometimes standing in front of our relationship with God. And if we don't learn to control our worship, we will worship the things rather than the one who made them. It's going to require a change, a pattern, a change of life, a change of decision process. It's going to require a change. Peter Drucker said this. I, I, I love Peter Drucker as a management leader and thinker. He's going to be with the Lord now. But he said this. He said, if you want something new, you have to stop doing something old. If you want something new, you have to stop doing something old. So what is it that we have to stop? I think we have to stop thinking of ourselves first. According to verse 33, we got to put God first. And so therefore, I think we should give first. And I want to just challenge you in this. Lori and I grew up in a home. Uh, she grew up in her home. I grew up in my home. My mother taught me this. Her parents taught her, her this. And we have done this since the beginning of our marriage, is we have just put God first in our finances. That means off the top, before, as we make our, our, our living in life, that we have been giving 10% of our income from the very beginning. That's just the way we do it. It's the way we grew up. It was easier for us to get married and to continue to do that than to even question it. So here's a challenge I want you, here's a challenge for all of us in this room today. That may be too big of a jump for you. Here's a challenge. I want you to take your giving to the next level, whatever the next level is in your life, for the next 12 months. All right, start with that, because let's get giving first, because get God first, let's get him in the equation, let's think about that first, 
And so let's do that first. So it's, for some of you, it's nothing. You haven't been giving anything. The offering plate comes by. We talk about giving. You look the other direction and, or, whatever, or whatever the case may be. Let's start, let's start there. So start with giving. And what would giving look like? Giving something. For something, people, that means the plate comes by and you reach your pocket. You're hoping for a five and you're praying it's not a 20. And you pull it out and, and you drop it in the basket. If you're a something giver, I want to encourage you to do proportionate giving. I love proportionate giving because as God blesses you, guess what? Your, your giving goes up. If, if you're on commission and your, and your income goes down, guess what? Your giving goes down. According to God's blessings is according to your giving. The last one is gracious giving. The gracious giving is the one who, who gives over and above. Now, whatever level you have been giving then I want to encourage you to go to the next level of giving in your life for the next 12 months. For example, gracious giving would be over and above what you're giving to the ministry budget to maybe to what you're going to give to the Envision campaign. Now, let me just pause for a moment. I know I'm taking some time in a message, but I want to say something. We have had people from the beginning of our church the land that we're setting on, the building that our children are meeting in right now, the building that you're setting in right now, that we've had members, thank God for them, who said, I believe in this church, and I want to build a church that will be here long after me. You know, I'm going to just be frank with you. God will one day move Lori and I. I don't know when. He will either move us somewhere or he'll move us up there. But we'll be gone. But one of the things that won't be gone is the money that we invested in this campus, in this ministry, of this church. And there'll be seats, and there'll be Bibles, and there'll be, there'll be a place of worship for generations once we're gone. So I thank God that as we're adding 300 more seats around this back room right now, that there's going to be people in this room right now who are going to say, you know what, I've been given proportionately, but I'm going to step up for the next 12 months, and I'm going to give over and above my tithe. Lori and I committed for three years to give over and above our tithe, a double tithe, to the Envision campaign of our church. And so I challenge you to consider what you might give to the Envision campaign moving forward. Live second. Give first, live second. See, we typically do the reverse. And again, I take you back to the ABC budget. What that will help you do is it will help you determine what are, what are my comforts. So let's start with C. ABC stands for comforts. What are our basics? What are our absolutes? If you start out there and you work through the budget and you put as many of those items, cable television, three cars, boats, you put as many of those things over in the comfort items as you possibly can. And then you move to the basics, all right? Basics are we have two cars instead of one car. Of absolute need, because we don't have public transportation, is I, we at least need one car in our home. And you start building your budget according to the ABCs, then you'll start finding that you do have space, you do have margin if you build it in. But if everything you have is an A, an absolute, then you'll never have money for service. You'll never have money to give. Now, I've talked a lot about Lori and I's giving, not because I want to talk about our giving, but I want to talk about our giving just as an example. That's all. I can tell you this. We give 10% of our income to Grace Point. We give an additional 10%. We committed three years ago 
to the Envision campaign. We're now upping that for another year. But then, above that, because we have found such blessing in giving and serving through our giving, we want to give over and above that. We have five children that we're helping in Zambia that are dear friends of ours that, and we've got pictures of them here, that we're helping to send to school. And we love this, this family. We're helping them to go to school. And I, I say all that just to say this. There is such more, more joy in sending them to school than it is in me buying a new shirt and me buying a new iPad and me getting the latest and the greatest. Andy Stanley said it like this, you will never miss the money you give to meet the need in someone else's life. Would you bow your heads with me? As you think about your level of giving, as you think about your heart, your worries, your concerns, your wants, I want you to start with this. Seek first his kingdom. See, it really doesn't matter today. I don't want you to give grudgingly. I want you to give because it's an act of worship, because you're seeking him first. I want you to live not with anxiety, just because I don't want you to live with anxiety. I want you to do it because you are so surrendered to him in your heart that all the concerns of this world mean so much less today. I want to pray for you right now. By God, I, I bow before your people here. And I ask that, Lord, you do a great work in them. Now, from the inside out. I pray this in Jesus' name.